The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. Welcome, everyone. Really, really glad that you are here today. And um, my topic is longing for belonging. And here at Common Ground, um, once a quarter, we come together to uh, reprise the beautiful uh, Buddhist um, ritual of taking the three refuges and the precepts, which we'll do later um, this month. But we take refuge in the Buddha, in the possibility of waking up and abandoning greed and hatred and ignorance. We take refuge in the Dharma, the liberating wisdom of the Buddhist teachings, and the truth of the way things are. And finally, we take refuge in the Sangha, and that's the community of people, past, present, future, who are committed to embodying these liberating teachings and to support each other in following the Eightfold Noble Path, essentially in being willing to turn towards suffering in our effort not to harm ourselves or each other. And we're here today as a Sangha, as spiritual friends, really interested in understanding suffering and in not harming ourselves or others. And I believe, I'm totally convinced that the most important quality of us as human beings is our tremendous capacity for care. None of us would be here today if there hadn't been other human beings who were willing to keep us alive when we were infants. And although there are other really pro-social species, especially among the apes that care for each other, and we even know of instances where animals care across species, you know, Coco the talking gorilla had a little kitten, and we often see instances of animals really being friends with animals from other species, it's only human beings that can really care about people they don't know, can really care about people they don't like, can care about people who are yet to be born. We have this tremendous capacity for care, care for other species, and really importantly, deep, deep, deep care for our, our planet. And so it seems to me kind of paradoxical sometimes that here we are, the species that are just you know, super primed to care. And that we often don't feel somehow that we belong, that there's often this just kind of nagging, existential, self-doubt kind of thing that I just don't know if I belong. I really don't belong. I mean, it, it seems that it is so um, pervasive. And it just, to me, is kind of paradoxical in, in a way, because we are so primed to care, so incredibly made to connect. And this has been a subject that a number of Dharma teachers have uh, talked about in the past couple of years. So I want to uh, bring their voices in the room. And one is this wonderful teacher, Sebony Selassie. And um, Sebony is uh, half Ethiopian, half Eritrean, and she wrote this wonderful book in which she investigates 
um, belonging and, and not belonging. And I'll read something a little bit from this. He says, our desire to belong is what makes us humans precisely feeling like we don't belong opens up to belonging. I'll read that again. Our desire to belong is what makes us human precisely because feeling like we don't belong opens us up to belonging. If we didn't long for it, our species wouldn't have perished. Our longing to belong is, as the Irish poet David White says, one of our core competencies. The longing to belong is one of our core competencies. He says, we rediscover belonging by longing for it. We long for it because we feel we've lost it. To be longing requires opening to all the ways we feel we don't belong. You do not need to be a nerdy, black, immigrant, spiritual, womanist, weirdo, cancer survivor with a unique name to feel you don't belong. <laughs> Although it helps. <laughs> All of us are taught not to belong. We feel we don't belong. And presto, our survival instinct triggers our longing to belong. This profound longing may be the only thing that can save us from extinction. And she says, um, and here it is, in dire circumstances, we instinctively default to belonging. In dire circumstances, we instinctively default to belonging. The recent demonstrations of local and global compassion in response to the COVID-19 pandemic are only one example. Kindness and generosity are encoded in each one of us. And when we feel belonging, we are able to meet people, situations, difficulties, joy, life with more kindness, generosity, and ease. So we have this core competency to, um, to long to belong. And some of you may be aware that, that right now, sort of in public policy discourse, there are a number of public figures uh, calling attention to what is being called an epidemic of loneliness. Um, the Surgeon General Vivek Murthy has written uh, a book about it. And um, Senator um, Chris Murphy from Connecticut and our own Senator Tina Smith are actually working on legislative efforts to address this as a public policy, um, public policy issue. The consequence of people feeling alienated and uncared for. Um, years ago, um, which is probably like 2000s, early 2000s, um, I heard the wonderful Dharma teacher, James Barrett, um, who wrote a, a book called Awakening Joy, and he teaches Awakening Joy classes on the spirit, through Spirit Rock uh, online. He talked about, he, he said he was little Jamie Barrett's from Queen. I was little Patty Kelch from the Bronx. Um, <laughs> But uh, he, he talked about his, his experiences um, as a, a sports fan. And um, I, think, I think he rooted Mets. He's from Queens. I'm guessing he rooted Mets, but I forget. But as a, as a sports fan and as a rock concert goer. And he said what was so great about those experiences was the sense of belonging. 
that you know that that how you felt that everyone there was uh cared about what everyone else cared about cared about the team cared about music and it brought people together he said there's there's sort of downsides to this but you know really like to think about that's an instance where we really feel belonging when we're all at a concert and we all love the music or we're at um uh a sports um a sports event. And I must say that much to my surprise, some of my most enjoyable experiences in the past two years was watching the Minnesota's pre-professional women's soccer team, the Aurora play. I just can't tell you how much fun it was to be there at TC at the stadium because it was so wholesome. There was such great sportsmen, sportsmanship, sportswomanship. I mean, that, that it was just such an incredibly wholesome experience and it was really i was really attuned to this flavor of belonging um that everyone there was was just so happy to see these women playing and um and it's uh you know it, it was just and it was lovely because it, it was all never the other team never got booed and um, it was just a really great thing but ephemeral you know after you finish you know, twirling your scarf around and um you know it's uh it's ephemeral. So some of us still have this feeling that we don't belong, that we're not connected, that we're not um, included. And Dharma teacher Larry Yang, who is uh, a Chinese American gay man, wrote about his experience uh, in his early days of practice in his book, um, Awakening Together, The Spiritual Practice of Inclusivity and Community, highly recommended. But he talks about what happened in Dharma circles that was so alienating to him. And he says, this is page 87. Larry says, like everyone, I wanted to hear the teachings and cultivate the wisdom that would allow me to be happier in life and to reduce suffering. What was most important to me was how the practices of mindfulness and meditation were relevant to what I was actually going through every day. And of course, I would imagine this to be true for most practitioners, regardless of the circumstances of their background, families of origin, or difficulties they have experienced. So it was challenging and painful to never hear mentioned such central examples of suffering in our modern world as racism, heterosexism, discrimination, or wealth disparity. The silence on these topics relevant for anyone who experiences marginalization in their personal or communal lives felt like a turning away from suffering instead of meeting it. It felt like the opposite of what Dharma teachings invite us to do. And this just seems to me to be so poignant because we are about turning toward suffering. I mean, that's the Buddha's first noble truth. There is suffering in this world and we turn toward it. And it is, I believe, it is our mindfully turning toward suffering that um, our own as well as others that really supports connection. It is this turning toward suffering. 
Ruth King, um, who has been here in the past, who's a wonderful teacher, wrote uh, Mindful of Race, Transforming Racism from the Inside Out. She says, racism is a heart disease. How we think and respond to it is at the core of racial suffering and racial healing. And she says, the best tool I know to transform from our relationship to racial suffering is mindfulness meditation. For more than 20 years, that practice has supported me in experiencing racial, um, I can't read my own writing, racial, um, racial distance without warring against it. And I think that this idea about being willing to turn toward the suffering in our lives, the suffering in our personal lives, the systemic um, suffering in our communal lives is a really important part of understanding um, belonging, to really be aware of this, to not marginalize our own feelings and to be willing to take in the um, mindfully take in the enormous suffering um, around us. And that I, I think some of our sense of not belonging is really a matter of kind of defending ourselves against, um, against suffering, against getting close. Um, earlier this year, I read, um, read this quote from um, Brene Brown that really stopped me in my tracks. She says, because we can feel belonging only if we have the courage to share our most authentic selves with people, our sense of belonging can never be greater than our level of self-acceptance. I'll read that again. Because we can feel belonging only if we have the courage to share our most authentic selves with people, our sense of belonging can never be greater than our level of self-acceptance. Just take a minute to reflect on that. You know, at the very beginning of our meditation, I invited everyone here to bring their whole selves into the room. And how often we sort of show up even to ourselves only partially. That there's really a challenge in truly accepting our whole selves. And I believe that this is where the practice of metta and self-compassion really come in. I think those are the tools that we have in our, um, in our repertoire of, of Buddhist practices that really, really increase this capacity to connect, first of all, with ourselves and then with others. When this loving kindness practice is taught, Usually, it's taught um, that we begin with ourselves. Um, and people find this so challenging. And I've been teaching metta 
for years and years and years. It's my default practice. It's my favorite practice. And I just notice how sometimes I just blip through myself to get on to others. You know, that I don't really take that time to really connect with myself and my, um, my own suffering. Because self-acceptance is the key to intimacy. Compassion for our own vulnerability, for our own humiliations, for what seem to us to be our own inadequacies. When we can really accept and have compassion for that, then we are most able to be authentic with other people. It doesn't mean that we have to share everything with other people, but because we are so connected to ourselves, to know ourselves so uh, so intimately, which may sound ironic, you know, well, of course I know myself. Can we know ourselves that intimately to really accept um, all, all of whom we are? There's a, a metaphrase that I use a lot, which is, may I accept myself completely with great kindness, just as I am right now. May I accept myself completely with great kindness, just as I am right now. Because if, if I'm not able to accept where I am right now, there's no possibility of sort of moving forward or of spiritual development or of, of any sort of, I don't want to use the word progress, but if I can't accept um, who I am right now, if I can't know that, if I can't be mindfully present to that, how can I, how can I be mindful of anything else? I mean, it seems like that's really at, at the core to really accept ourselves completely with kindness. This is, this is who I am. This is what I've done. This is um, my, my history. I can't remember which teacher, many teachers say this, you know, but sort of spiritual ma maturity is giving up all hope of a better past. <laughs> spiritual maturity is giving up all hope of a better past. And we laugh about it, but how often, you know, we are stuck in if only, if, if only my parents had done this. If only, if only, if only, if only. And, um, you know, to say, no, this is the way it was. And to be really intimate with that is uh, what really enables us to really be present to other people. If we can't be present to ourselves, how can we be present to other people? So in, in Metta, now, we do this practice that is about wishing ourselves well. You know, metta is, um, we think about it as friendliness or loving kindness. The goal of metta ultimately is to abandon ill will. And, you know, ill will is essentially wanting ourselves or someone else to suffer for the sake of suffering. It has nothing to do with justice, but it's about that 
that just really, and, and we all see this sort of schadenfreude in, in ourselves when we see that something um, bad happens to a politician we don't like. Okay, George Santos was expelled from the House of Representatives. And they're not, for me, this is a, yeah, yeah. But, you know, I mean, that's, that's, um, that's ill will. You know, instead of seeing this as a person who is engaged in just this sort of series of self-harming and other harming behavior. And just to have you know some compassion for that. It's not that he doesn't go to jail, but to just have, so what would it be like to be on that kind of treadmill where it was just kind of one, one act of self-sabotage after, after another, instead of that sort of smugness well how the mighty have fallen or you know it's it's and it's something that we all i think i should just speak for myself but it's a tendency that meta really tries to root out this sort of schadenfreude taking pleasure in another's pain in another's disgrace in another's humiliation so meta practice is really about trying to root out that impulse in us and it's challenging because it's so fed by so many things in in our culture to have this kind of, of um, snarky attitude. But when we, we practice metta, when we practice abandoning ill will toward ourselves, and probably most people here have recognized at some time in their life that they were engaged in a kind of self-sabotaging behavior, or self-punishing behavior, um, not treating themselves very well, that metta is really the, the antidote to that. It is about you know, holding ourselves in this kindness, in this tenderness. Sometimes when we do metta, um, you know, we have an, an image of ourselves. And I often say to people, you know, find the image of yourself in your mind that maximizes the possibility of regarding yourself tenderly. Mm. What's the image? Um, for me, it's when I was six or seven and had the school picture taken. My hair just stuck out. I had no front teeth, you know, and it was just this <laughs> kind of pathetic seven-year-old. <clears throat> but, you know, when I hold that little image in my mind, I can feel a kind of tenderness for myself that I don't always feel when I'm, I think about myself right now. So like we get the image that enables us to feel most tender toward ourselves and see what we can do to cultivate it. And it really is a cultivation. It's not like, well, you either have it or you don't have it. Metta is a practice of cultivation. It's a practice of nurturing whatever tender regard we have for ourselves. And if it's hard to have it in the present moment, you might think of times in the past when you could have used some support, some tender regard, and your, you know, however old you are now goes back to your um, your grade school self who was miserable, or probably your junior high self was the most miserable. But, um, you know, and, and having some tenderness um, toward that. And then we build from there. And we think about the people that we care about the most, that we admire the most, that we feel inspired by. 
and we connect to them in our in our aspiration. And when we do meta, um, and they say, you know, find the um, usually called the benefactor, but the person who inspires us with kindness. Sometimes it's someone you know in your own life who is very kind, um, a teacher, grandparent, parent, someone who is very kind to you. But it can also be someone that you don't know that you, um, you know, I, I think about the Dalai Lama, uh, Jane Goodall, um, a wonderful um, Buddhist philosopher named jo- Joanna Macy, who has said, if she's 94, I think she's just about to turn 94. And Joanna said within the past couple of years, she was asked, if you could have been born at any time in the world's existence, when would you want to be born? And you know, the good Buddhist answer is, oh, I'd like to be born at the time of the Buddha. You know, um, But Joanna Macy said, I would like to be born right now because we are at such a crisis. The planet is in such jeopardy. There is such a need for people to um, to really express their love for the planet. This is the time I would like to be born because this is such a critical time. I just kind of took my breath away. And so, you know, we can do metta. We, we connect with someone who sort of inspires us, but then we keep moving it out to the people that, um, that we know. And then the people that we don't know, um, we can do metta for, categories like i often think all librarians um or no people who work in public health um you know that we all someone once told me um and he he had metaphor um like the mothers of rock stars and the mothers of guys who raced motorcycles and i thought that was so imaginative um meta can really engage our imagination and we can we can ha- feel and we just cultivate. So we work with the, the you know the folks who are easiest, and then we just keep sort of extending it. Um, and in um, I will say in my own life as an activist working on political issues, one issue for me is really not demonizing the opponents, and and to really see the people who hold policies who take actions, who do things that, that I think are extremely harmful, um, terrible things, but not to demonize them. Sometimes it's by having a little exercise. And I think, would I want to have a mind like that? Would I want to be like that? Would I want to be so, let's say, narcissistic like that? Would I want to be someone who never felt obligated to tell the truth? What would it be like to have a mind like that? And that really becomes a source of compassion. It, it becomes a way of connecting without, without demonizing. Um, so these, and, and self-compassion, where we really, really connect deeply with our own suffering. And we hold our suffering in this sort of kindness Jack Cornfield has a, a wonderful um, compassion practice that is, um, and let's say if we do it for ourselves, may I be held in great compassion. May my pain and sorrow be eased. May I live with a wise and peaceful heart. 
you know, we can offer that to ourselves as well as, as others. Um, Ruth King, whom I mentioned before, has um, a wonderful uh, practice that she does when she has groups together. She has people kind of mull around the room and they come up to each other and say, I am here because you are here. You are here because I am here. Our hearts are old friends. I am here because you are here. You are here because I am here. And our hearts are old friends. And just to take that in, that beautiful, beautiful um, connection. So seeing ourselves as belonging to each other in this, in this lovely way, um, as part of each other. Um, Thich Nhat Hanh, the great late um, Zen master, talked about this as, as interbeing. We recognize our interbeing. And certainly in Buddhist practice, we're always emphasizing our interdependence. Um, so we can see ourselves really as belonging to each other in a way that is not um, acquisitive, but just beautifully responsive, that we belong to each other, we belong together, we belong to each other. And this, I believe, is especially crucial now as we are facing an environmental crisis, um, when we are um, knowing that there are more extreme um, conditions that are going to take place all over the globe. I mean, even here in Minnesota, where we've been sort of protected in a wonderful little geographic bubble, you know, this summer's experience of having the, the smoke from the wildfires, where it was really, you know, there were days when you wouldn't want to go out if you didn't have to, um, you know, we didn't walk the dogs, we, you know, all of it. And, and I thought, okay, this is, this is the future. How am I getting ready for this future? And how am I working with my community to get ready for this future so that no one has to endure the, the worst of this? What are we doing? And as a community, we can think about it as a Sangha. What's going to be our Sangha response when there is disaster, um, when there is um, um, a sort of what, what uh, two bioethicists said that we are, work, we are moving toward a marginally inhabitable planet? What is our, our duty? in moving toward this. And it is something that's very Buddhist in talking about the eco-crisis. Mutuality, not abandoning each other, being present to each other, um, not turning away from the suffering. And that should be one of our, our deepest core values. That's the way we belong is we don't turn away from the suffering, our own or others. So I want to end with a poem by Joanna Macy, and then we have a little bit of time for, um, for discussion. But this has been, um, as I mentioned, Joanna Macy is this amazing um, Buddhist scholar, environmental activist. She's been active since Chernobyl. Before that, she actually, for a time, worked for the CIA in Berlin in the 60s. She's a, a scholar. She's a translator of Rilke and just this amazing, amazing um, activist 
And this has been my go-to poem for about a year. And she says, when you act on behalf of something greater than yourself, you begin to feel it acting through you with a power that is greater than your own. This is grace. Today, as we take risks for something greater than our separate individual lives, we are feeling graced by other beings and by the earth itself. Those with whom and on whose behalf we act give us strength and eloquence and staying power we didn't know we had. We just need to practice knowing that and remembering that we are sustained by each other in the web of life. Our true power comes as a gift like grace because in truth it is sustained by others. If we practice drawing on the wisdom and beauty and strengths of our fellow human beings and our fellow species, we can go into any situation and trust that the courage and intelligence required will be supplied. I'll read the last stanza again. If we practice drawing on the wisdom and beauty and strengths of our fellow human beings and our fellow species, we can go into any situation and trust that the courage and intelligence required will be supplied. So thank you for your kind attention. And um, I, it would be lovely if people had um, comments that they would like to offer I, do we have a mic? I'll get the mic. I'll take a minute and think about it. It might be you'd want to share um, an experience of belonging that you've had. Or you, I mean, if you have a question for me, I'm happy to, to respond, but also interested in other people's experiences. Everyone, uh, my name is Mary Wall, and um, thank you for that beautiful talk. That was really wonderful to, to be here for that. And um, I'm thinking a lot about what you're saying about getting really close to suffering. And I'm wondering, um, that, that's a hard thing to do. I think I spent a lot of my life uh, trying to figure out how to deal with being really sensitive and having suffering, feeling that suffering. So what what kinds of... Um, that last quote, I mean, that last poem you read, I think was helpful. And I know this idea of belonging can help with that, but how do you really be with that suffering and survive sometimes, I guess is the question. What 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 can I what can people do to be with that suffering and not suffer too much, I guess? Okay, so I'm gonna repeat that for folks online. Mary's question was, you know, what can we do to be with suffering? But be with suffering in a way that that doesn't you know completely undo our ourselves in a way how do we have find the the strength to be with um with suffering um it's great if we don't have to be with it alone if we have um friends that we can can be with to 
um, share our experiences of suffering is is sort of one response. But the the other, I think we develop a capacity for being with suffering by using our imagination in part. And this is where I think that it is um, it is wonderful that we have novels and movies. I mean, there are all sorts of ways that we can develop our capacity for empathy and for being with suffering um, imaginatively by um, going to movies that that challenge us um, reading books that may be difficult um, and that that it just enlarges our capacity. I talked about that notion of of cultivating uh, cultivating meta. I think we cultivate our capacity to turn toward toward suffering in part by our willingness to imaginatively engage with it so that when we engage with it in real life, we are are better prepared. Um, I would also say that another part of that is to really cultivate the joy in our our own lives um, and to um, you know to recommendation in the summer go to an uh, an Aurora's women's soccer game. <laughs> um, but um, it's it's also you know, it, it is about really cultivate right, the kids are here so this, I'm going to wrap this up in just a second but you know it is about cultivating joy too and and really being mindful of our joy you know when you're taking a walk with your dog to just really to to empathize with your your dog's joy to just really take that in that whenever we have an opportunity to cultivate the good we cultivate the good in ourselves and and um you know when we when something good happens to you, you can say to yourself, and may this be toward the benefit of all beings everywhere. Truly, may this be to the benefit of, of everyone. So cultivating that capacity, but really also intentionally cultivating the capacity to turn towards suffering and to do what we can. I often say to people, no act is too small. People sometimes think, I just feel helpless. There's nothing I can do. That's almost never the case. There is always something you can do that is small. And you will be amazed that doing that small thing really helps. So thank you all again. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.